Welcome back to the People's Tax Pod. I'm your host, David Sorensen, and I'm joined today by our resident expert, Professor Ed. At the People's Tax page, we believe that America is plagued by three big issues. First is our growing inequality. Second is the tax system's role in exacerbating this inequality. And the third is how the tax code could be a solution to this problem. Smarter tax policy would ensure that the upper class pays its fair share of taxes, benefiting all Americans. In the last few weeks, we have been discussing the first issue, American inequality. We started by exploring why inequality is an issue. Today, we find ourselves in a society in which the wealthiest Americans earn hundreds of billions of dollars throughout a pandemic, while millions of Americans entered poverty and struggled with food and housing insecurity through the same pandemic. Last week, we talked about how American inequality is unevenly distributed. White households have an average wealth that is 10 times that of black households due to centuries of official and unofficial government policies that favored white wealth and property accrual, artificially depressing the value of minority-owned real estate and businesses. This week, we are talking about another type of inequality. This inequality cuts not across neighborhoods, but across bedroom. We are talking about the gender bias of the tax code. Couples across the income spectrum must decide whether to get married and, if they do get married, whether both spouses should work or not. At the bottom end of the income spectrum, the first decision reigns supreme, and at the top, the second. As we will see, this has profound implications for the structure of our society and the behavior of our fellow citizens. Professor Ed, we always love having you on board. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's always my pleasure. It's great to see how the the band is still going along, and I'm really glad to be here. We've been talking about different types of inequalities and how arbitrary inequality inherently creates social issues. We started with the problem of extreme inequality itself before moving on to the racial nature of much of our inequality. One dimension of American inequality, which we have not yet given its proper due, is gender inequality. This is a topic which you are very passionate about and is actually the topic that inspired you to shift from private practice and to focus on academia. You've written several articles and a book on the tax code's disparate treatment of gender. Historically, this has fallen predominantly on women, which likely comes as a surprise to no one. We are excited to talk to you about exactly that issue today. Can you give us a brief background of our gender inequality and the tax code? One of the first pieces I wanted to write as a scholar was just kind of laying out in a doctrinal way all of the biases against really working women. We're going to talk about, we'll get into the nuance, but the bias that I am concerned about is a bias against two worker marriages, two spouses. Now they can be the same sex, of course, but two spouses and they both work. That's a very disfavored model. I went to graduate school. I went over to the USC econ department, got my master's in econ, wrote a master's thesis on the gender biases of tax. And then I published Taxing Women, which is relentlessly saying there is a bias, it's here, it's deliberate. And that bias really is a decision to favor the Ozzy and Harriet model. The man works and the wife stays home, works in the kitchen and raises the kids. That model gets favored. And if you're favoring one model, you're disfavoring other models So the model you're disfavoring is, of course, the modern norm where both spouses in a marriage are working. Spouses always work. The stay-at-home mom worked. Nancy Stout has written a nice piece on taxing housework. But I'm talking about paid work. Most of the law students I teach, most of the people probably listening, 
that's what you assume. You're going to marry someone and you and your spouse are both going to work for money. That's a disfavored model. And it's pretty steeply disfavored. And that's where all the biases begin. Are those biases necessarily concentrated in a certain type of earner? Or do those biases persist across income bands? The biases are affected by choices. So the biases will have different impacts on different families based on whether or not they marry and whether or not both spouses work, not by income level. So they do vary with income level, and let's talk about it. But basically, the simple story is that the bias is severe at all income levels, but different income levels react differently to it. So let me give a sense, you know, a kind of simple example. And let's imagine that you have kids and you're living in California. If you're making 150000 you, David, you are no longer paying Social Security tax, but your spouse entering the workforce will pay Social Security tax on her or his first dollar right from the get-go. Then you add on the marginal rate for the income tax that's dictated by your salary, David. You're a poobah. You put your spouse into the 35 37% bracket. Then you add in, if you're in California, another 10%. So actually in California, we're, we're, we'll make it now, you're making 150000 David. Your spouse is nominally getting paid $100,000 a year, takes 60 of that away for taxes. She's down to 40. Suppose you have kids. You got young kids, as many working uh, parents have young kids. You got to get childcare. Suppose you're able to get childcare for... $500 a week, which, which is, you know, some the ridiculous below minimum wage. God bless you if you can get good child care for $500 a week. If you can, that's $25,000 a year. Take that out of the 100000 And then you're going to have other expenses as well. You're going to maybe need a second car. You're going to spend more for restaurant meals. You're going to spend more for home cleaning and all this other stuff. You can easily end up just losing that money. So, on average, the average working wife in America loses 70%, seven out of $10 to work-related expenses and taxes. So that's the bias. Now, how do people, your question, how do people respond to that bias? Well, the rich people, the richest Americans respond to that bias by not having the second worker work. She stays home. She takes care of the kids. She stays home. She does philanthropic work. That's the that's the 1% lifestyle. That's the modal lifestyle of, of CEOs and so forth. The poor people don't have the choice. The lower income people don't have the choice to work or not. They need money. Their choice variable becomes, should we marry? So basically, the bias I'm talking about predicts Lower income people don't marry. Upper income households have one worker. And everything between that, the life of the listener, your life is just full of stress. It's full of stress because you're living a lifestyle that you want to live. Both spouses want to work. Both spouses want to raise kids. Both spouses want to be married. And that's a lifestyle that's just being hammered by these economic biases. So you guys are under stress. And whatever that says for divorce rates and quality of life and quality of childcare. So rich people 
don't have two workers. Poor people don't get married. One out of three American children being raised by a single parent. 33% of American children being raised by a single parent. Most of them are poor and the converse is true. Most poor people don't marry. Most unmarried people, at least with kids, are poor. And, and, and all of that is, is a pretty obvious result of these tax laws. So these tax laws really, a century ago, were written intentionally to favor this two-parent, one-earner household that we still see today in the rich, but we, we don't really see elsewhere. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You don't have special accommodation for that second worker. Actually, if you go back 100 years, so the income tax is kind of beginning around 1913, the, the original income tax, you got a special deduction as a married man. It was actually assumed that only men would file taxes or tax returns, and that if you happen to be married, you know, having a wife was like having a kid. You got an extra deduction for it. But then when we get really 1948, it's the peace dividend after the income tax has kind of ratcheted up during World War II. And the way we give a peace dividend is we treat spouses, we, we have joint filing. So you and your spouse, David, are going to file a single tax return. That's good. That's good if you, you only have one worker because it's going to lower you. It, it's going to lower your taxes if there's just one worker. If there are two workers, it's not going to help you save taxes. And the real problem is it creates this kind of stacking effect. So now if you think of how people live, we're talking kitchen table discussions. You know, honey, should I go to work? Honey, should I stay at work? So, you know, should I keep working? Should I take time off after I have kids? Should I go to work now that now that we have kids? Or, or you, These are questions. These are questions that millions of couples, millions of people, the burden, the psychic burden of these questions falls on women, but they're being asked all the time. And the accounting analysis, it's why taxing women, we began with this story. And so the accounting analysis is, well, we're going to assume that the man is going to work. We need an income and the man has a good job and the man doesn't have to have gaps in his workplace performance for kids. So the man can be on the tenure track. The man can be on the partnership track. The man can be there to make every evening meeting and every weekend golf deal. So the man is all in and the man is making a different salary. So now a good salary. Now we're putting that woman, that mom, that mom to be on the margin. She's on the margin because the proper analysis sitting around the kitchen table is to put her at the margin. What happens if I go to work and get $50,000 versus staying home? And when you do that math, you realize you're not making much money by working and maybe you're losing money by working. And maybe what happens among the kind of law student class is basically you guys can afford to do that. You're, you're paying a price for it, but you're saying, I don't want to take time out of the workplace. Maybe it's going to hurt me in the short term, but in the long term, you know, maybe I take six weeks off, whatever it is, but I'm going to get back quickly. I'm going to show them that I can keep working. So you're you're swimming upstream and kind of working extra hard because the biases are against you. But a lot of people, like the poor people that you're focusing on here in your inequality theme, 
One of the things I, I sketched out in Taxing Women, in 1994, if you had a man and a woman and say they had two kids and they were each making $10,000 a year, even below minimum wage, below poverty level then, they're each making $10,000 a year. If they got married, their taxes would go up by $5,000. Their taxes would go up by a quarter of their combined income. They can't afford it. The poor people can't afford to get married. But part of that is when you bring the benefits programs in and the benefits programs like housing vouchers and food stamps, they're tested by income level and they don't account for marriage at all. So, so if you get married, you look like you don't need food stamps, but you're really just two people making $10,000 each with a couple of kids. So what do you do? You don't get married. And at some point you look around and nobody's married. And, and the people who do happen to get married are paying a price the, the middle class, upper middle class law student types are just factoring that in and whatever stress it creates. The poor people can't afford it. They don't have the money. If they're married, they have more economic stress because they have less money. So it's really, it's, it's an incredible story when you connect all the dots. And part of it is about, you know, people's willingness you know, I mean, we we as scholars do some of the work of connecting the dots, but then people don't want to hear it. People don't. People don't want to take responsibility for the fact that we've we've created marriage traps and poverty traps. So we basically have an economic apartheid uh, in our in our class system where we've locked the poor people uh, into poverty and and into because uh, one another thing we can talk about. We've written, I've written about it in CNN pieces, the marginal tax rate facing people making 30, 40, $50,000 a year can go as high as 90% because they're losing benefits due to these means-tested programs as they make more money. So they're, they're trapped in poverty because as they try to earn more, they're heavily taxed. They're trapped in an unmarried state because they're big marriage penalties, they're big increased burdens if they, if they get married, and, and there's no hope. There's, there's no, you, you've got to, you've got to play the lottery because you got, you got to hop over that income level that you're in really making below 50,000 a year, probably the median household income, but those poor households, they don't have a lot of economic pathways to, to better, to better places. And yet we, as you know, the middle class and, and the upper class, we pin it on them. We blame them for not structuring their households the way we would do it as middle and upper class people. We blame them for, you know, not choosing to go to college and uh, stuff like that, despite the fact that like you're laying out, it doesn't marginally make economic sense for them to do so. No, that's exactly right. And that, and that, and that's such a good theme for the people's tax page, because, you know, we, we talk about taxes, right. And when you're talking about, you know, you generally speaking, you think, what is the connection between tax and inequality? You think, well, here come the progressive tax proposals. So let's have a mark to market. Let's have progressive rates. Let's raise the rates on rich people. And what do we hear? Like before we finish our suggestion, we hear the what about incentives? What about incentives? You can't people won't work. People will move. People will, will leave the country. People will flee. People will stop saving. So we, it, it's as if the rich people were finely attuned and respond to every possible economic incentive. And then exactly as you said, David, when we turn to the lower classes, they're poor people. 
I don't, we have these naive assumptions that they don't, they don't know math, they don't know economics, they don't know law, they're obtuse to incentives. It's not an incentive story, it's a moral story. And one of my favorite examples of that, I think we see it with this, this, the fact that the, so many of the, the poor are unmarried and so many of the unmarried are poor, back to the Moynihan report and other notions that that's because of a lack of, I don't know, a, a, a lack of good faith, particularly among black men. Black men take a big hit for this. And one of my favorite uh, kind of anecdotes for that point was a debate, one of the presidential debates between Obama and Romney. And, you know, they're arguing about guns and they're arguing about other things. And, and then it got to this question of, you know, what can they do, you know, for, I think, particularly for the Blacks or what can they do for lower income families? And they both went off. Like what, what Romney said was, well, they should learn to get married. They're not, that, that's the answer. The answer, they should do like we do. They should get married. They should be responsible. They should be respectful. And then Obama comes in and Obama agrees. And Obama gives his little thing against, and Jesse Jackson was in this kind of movement too, gives this thing criticizing black men for their lack of commitment, their lack of faith. They're not getting married. They're not sticking around to be good role models and help their kids out. And not seeing, you know, forget other incentives, but not seeing the economic incentives that make that situation. I mean, it's, it's absurd to think that 33% of American children have, have moms and dads that just don't care about it. And that there's no reason those people are not getting married and not sticking around to raise the kids, except that they're bad hats, they're selfish, irresponsible. That, that's crazy, that's insulting. So we should look at economic incentives, look at them closely. The poor people cannot afford to get married. There are very severe financial penalties on low-income people if they get married rather than blaming poor people for not getting married, we should blame ourselves for giving them no option to get married and then compounding their sin with this kind of moral blame game. So that, that's where I think this, I get most passionate about it. One of the things that sticks out to me is that we talk about the economic decisions as if, as if making the rational decision means doing the math. But the reality is it doesn't. It means looking around at your community, seeing what other people in similar situations choose to do and how that affects them. And when it when it you know comes at such a steep marginal rate and when it and when it you know increases the burden to get married, you're gonna see other people in your community trying that and just having a higher burden. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how they're making this decision in a rational way, even if they're not necessarily doing the math on it. Oh, a hundred percent right, and it makes me it makes me think like you might actually have read my book because because that that is the object the object somehow you think well the rich people can do the math and they have accounts and they can do the math so they're responding to incentives because they can do the math and they get the email or the memo from the accountant or from the lawyer telling them what to do in the face of any tax change but these poor people you can do whatever you want to them because they don't know what they're they're illiterate anyway and they're not paying attention so we can do whatever we want couldn't be more wrong, couldn't be more offensive. So what I say in Taxing Women, like I have one of my favorite sentences, is as Freud, among others, has taught us, what we don't know can hurt us. So it's not that, and, and here, the, the points of Taxing Women, it's not that the poor people, nor anybody else, 
nor anybody else understands this. I, I've explained, I won't say who, but a, but a tax professors at top 20 law schools, when taxing women came out, I had to explain that the marriage penalty was different from the secondary earn advice. And once you do that on the on a whiteboard, a blackboard for like 15 minutes, it's like, oh yeah, duh, sorry we asked such a stupid question. But it still comes up. Uh, I had to spend a lot of time figuring out how the social security system worked and how benefits for spouses work. Like a spouse gets, if you get divorced, the spouse gets to sort of take your earnings history for herself, you know, something, you get to use it too, but she gets to use your earnings history so that it helps her payoffs, but only if, only if you've been married for 10 years. Like very few divorces happen after 10 years. Most divorces happen by seven, right? So so if, if, if you, so that situation, if, if you're married, you're in that Ozzy and Harriet situation and you're married and the, the spouse is staying home, uh, and, you know, after nine, nine and a half years, things don't work out and, and she gets a divorce. Her Social Security earnings history is a zero. She, she's kind of, your benefits from Social Security at the end of it, they keep lengthening this. It, it's your weighted average of, of, it used to be, at the time of taxing women, 38 years in the workforce. And they've increased that. It's now like 41 or 43 What's significant about that detail? Sounds wonky. What the hell is the professor talking about this weird detail? Well, who has 43 years of earnings history? A man who went to work when he graduated college and stayed at work for 43 years. Who doesn't? A woman who took years off to raise children, right? So, so the length of the earnings history on which your benefits are based and the credit you get for a spouse, but not if you're not married for more than 10 years, all of these things are bizarre, and nobody, nobody, like if anybody understood what I just said, those people and I would be among the 10 people who know that rule, right? So back to your point, it's not that anybody understands these things, and it's not that the poor people have to read Taxing Women, although it's it's available on audiobook. Uh, so it's not that they have to read Taxing Women or buy Taxing Women or listen to our podcast. They look around. And whether they understand why or not, the fact of the matter, that example we gave, two people, they're making $10,000, they get married, $5,000 is gone. They're not getting it. It's going to the government. So their bank account is lower. They don't have a bank account. They have less money for food, for going out on Saturday night. Uh, and whether they know what caused that, they feel the stress. They know there's no money. You start looking to the left of you, looking to the right of you. Nobody's married. There's no stigma for not getting married among lower income people because nobody gets married. So, so few people get married. So common is unmarriage, the unmarried state. And so dictated is that by economic conditions that th this argument that they didn't go to law school so they're not responding to the incentives is really kind of insulting. You mentioned the social security system, and that does sort of bring us to, in, in one, more than one way, the other end of it, you know, high earning individuals. What are the incentives that we see for high earning couples? So uh, David, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a good question. And it's interesting that you have social security in there because another thing that, that not everybody knows, but you lawyers, 
you're going to have a moment, you know, and you figure out sort of when it comes, it's probably going to come around September, where you've met your social security maximum. You only pay, so I think in, in 2021, it's 141000 Once you've made 140000 your taxes actually drop by like 12%. The amount that's being withheld, the 6.2%, that drops. You're making more money. Uh, your employer doesn't have to pay the matching share for that 6.2%. You get similar things, by the way, to the Social Security effect in fringe benefits. Fringe benefits, the employer, on the employer side, the employer would rather have like one $200,000 worker than $200,000 workers because the employer is out of paying the Social Security thing once that one worker hits 140. The employer has to give everybody making a certain amount of money, health benefits, and whatever benefits they give are roped in by tax laws with this anti-discrimination norm, which is only income-based. It's not a, a thicker sense of discrimination. So basically, anybody who makes more than you know fifty thousand is getting the full healthcare benefits. So rather than add another employee to the healthcare thing and increase our healthcare costs, we'd like to get the one dude uh, to work extra, <laughs> to work more. That's good. So so the employer has this kind of incentive on having a super employee, maybe supported by a stay-at-home spouse, because as you move again, to be practical about it. If you're going to be that kind of employee, sure, I'm there anytime. I'm there to answer any call. I'll drop whatever I'm doing. I'll get I'll get the client's will done no matter what. I'll work through the weekend. You probably do have the support of somebody at home who's not working that way. So then you get to a point among the upper income where it's, it's literally, literally the second worker the spouse thinking of picking up some income on his or her own. Well, they're they're in a higher tax bracket. They're paying the full Social Security tax, the full brunt of that fifteen point three. Uh, they they're absorbing the the uh, employer realizes that they're going to have to provide benefits for this person, so they're going to have to reduce their salary. Very often, they can't turn the benefits down on the grounds that their spouse already has provided them. They're sort of forced to take them, although they don't benefit them. So. Among the rich, you know, we were kicking around this statistic uh, before we started taping, a statistic circa taxing women that I understand is still reasonably current is that of the 500 CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 400 of them, 80% of them are men with stay-at-home spouses or men with non-working spouses. And if you think the other 20% includes men with working spouses and unmarried men and women, uh, that's really a pretty shocking division of labor there. Back to those early days when I was workshopping and, and sharing the ideas that became taxing women, I gave one workshop to like Southern California tax professors. And there, there was an old fellow at uh, the he's now old, Bill Klein over UCLA and Mike Asimo at UCLA, wonderful tax scholars. And their reaction to all this stuff, which I was laying out and I'd gotten in trouble for being a feminist. We've just been talking about it in the podcast. Their reaction to all that was, oh yeah, we know all that. That's why we rig the withholding in our wife's paychecks. So the, these well-meaning tax professors, what they did was they claimed like no exemptions. 
so their spouses could think that their work was valuable when in fact all of the money they were making was going to go to taxes. The tax professors were just keeping that fact from their wives by asking the employers not to withhold taxes. So, you know, it's a strange world. It's why we need cartoons. It's why we need Supreme Unicorn. It's why we need you and the People's Tax Pod and the People's Tax Page. You know, these stories, these facts, inequality is real, the way the tax system contributes to it. Of course, that's an ongoing theme because we're not taxing the rich people. That's what our videos and everything are about. But here, David, you really raised, uh, opened up this window into other ways in which the tax system is a cause. It's not just a failure to be a cure. It's a cause of this kind of poverty traps, marriage traps, an economic caste system, the unmarried state of, of lower income households in America, the tax system is a cause of that. So before we even get to more progressive proposals to turn things around, let's understand how bad things are and how much the kind of heavy hand of the government fisc, the government's desire for money, is pushing and coercing people into limited life choices. And in our infinite need to be special, we blame it on any, everyone else's lack of morality. Yeah, we don't see the problem. And if we're forced to see the problem, it's not our problem. And no solution to the problem can, can involve raising taxes on us. Uh, and, and you put those kind of binders on the political process. And what do you have? You have 100 years of stagnation. You've got you know, growing wealth inequality reaching historic levels in an advanced Western economy that you would think theoretically is able, capable of taxing and doing things differently, but there's just no political will, uh, no political will to meaningfully tax the rich. No, uh, you know, one uh, the thing about this, by the way, taxing women comes out, I have my 15 minutes of fame, Trent Lott, then the speaker of, uh, or the, the Senate majority leader holds it up on, on Meet the Press, uh, I'm told that that Hillary Clinton had it on her bedstand. So I'm all excited. I'm a young punk and my work is having an influence. So and in fact, the Clinton administration proposes like a more generous child care credit. And I'm like, booyah. Within a week of their publishing this, their proposal for a child care credit, Phyllis Shapley, the recently departed Phyllis Shapley, a uh, very right wing, very conservative woman, comes out attacking taxing women and saying, you can't do anything that only helps working families. If you're gonna help kids, you have to help all kids. Clinton caves on that. So instead of child care relief, we get per child relief. And ever since then, uh, you know, for 30 years, all the relief has been per child. What difference does that make Per child relief exacerbates the bias. You get it whether you work or not. It's it's, it's a reason to stay home. Uh, stay home and get the child credit. Uh, go to work and incur additional expenses, but get no additional break. One final thing, just um, so final thing about it, I think it was published April 15th, 1997. And there's a headline, front page story. My book made the front page of the LA Daily News, which is the second newspaper in a one newspaper town. You know, it's, 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 it's a Los Angeles newspaper. I think it just went under, but it's not the LA Times, but it's the Daily News. 
And the headline, couldn't make this up, the headline was USC law professor, there I am in the headline, USC law professor proves that women shouldn't work. And then the text of it goes through the math, uses the math to suggest that women should stay home. And in addition to the quotes from taxing women, they're quotes from the Bible. It's like me and the Bible. And that's what they said. That's the art. That's the hook in the article. USC law professor proves what the Bible told us. Women shouldn't work. And then they have a little box in which they show how you're going to lose money from working. Thank you so much for joining us. I, you know, understanding inequality, understanding the various axes of inequality, I think are really important. And I really appreciate your time in explaining how we have very real, very systematic gender inequality in our tax system and in our society. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on that journey. To learn more about our tax system and to donate to the People's Tax Page, you can visit our website at peopletaxpage.org. To join our social media, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at People's Tax Page. And you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at People's Tax Pod. Stay safe. We will see you next week.